Welcome to ROH Strong Podcast. Here is your host, Kevin Eck. What's up, Honor Nation? Thanks for joining me for episode 14 of the ROH Strong Podcast, the official podcast of Ring of Honor Wrestling. Today's guest doesn't get a lot of screen time in ROH, but nonetheless, he's an important figure in ROH history and has been with the company behind the scenes for nearly a decade now. Before coming to ROH, he worked for years as a promoter and executive with the NWA and WCW. He's the Ring of Honor Director of Operations, Gary Juster. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Good morning. Or, or afternoon or whenever this podcast plays. <laughs> That's right. I think it drops at 7 a.m. So I guess it's, it, it's, it's morning, but yeah, it depends on when you listen to it. So Gary, the first question I always ask every podcast is, what have you been doing in quarantine these past several months? Uh, I have been doing uh, a lot of reading. Uh, I'm a live music uh, junkie. And um, I can't have live music in in clubs or venues, but uh, I watch a lot of uh, online concerts and I listen to a lot of music. Um, And as you know, um, I'm somewhat of a wrestling historian and I really enjoy um, looking online at all the old posters, the old newspaper articles, um, kind of the the history of wrestling through through the media that might've existed back in the day, uh, which would have been either the local television show or in many cases, newspapers and uh, newsletters. Yeah. I, I, I share that fascination with you looking at the old clips, especially the newspaper clippings uh, really are fascinating. As you know, I worked uh, in Baltimore for first the news American, which is unfortunately now defunct, but then later the Baltimore sun and I used to go to the archives in, in both places when I had some free time and just pull all the old wrestling clips. This is before everything was digital and everything was saved electronically. They literally t- you know, clipped the, the articles out of the paper and put them in folders. And I would just sit there and read about you know, Bruno San Martino and the Capital Wrestling Corporation and all those things that were going on back in the day. It's fascinating. Yeah, back out uh, in the old days when when I was a kid and maybe when you were a kid long before the digital age, if you went to a library, they had the reader's guide to periodicals and it was in a card catalog. And I used to go when I was a kid to the library at school and even to the public library to look up articles in mainstream uh, publications about pro wrestling. Back in the day, uh, the two major uh, weeklies were look magazine and life magazine. And I remember a big feature on, uh, on Bill Watts, actually, back in the day, and on Vern Gagne and on others. And it was interesting to see uh, what was then the, the mainstream uh, media in terms of publications uh, cover wrestling. Um, and they covered it many times as if it was a shoot, uh, other than the fact that they would kind of put some sarcasm in there to let their reader know that the author had his, uh, his or her suspicions. Right, exactly. Well, for those of uh, our listeners who don't know exactly what a director of operations does, can you just tell us what your responsibilities are in Ring of Honor? Sure. Uh, My main responsibilities are to secure venues, uh, coordinate all the various aspects of putting together a live event, 
uh, and then supervise uh, the live event on site. Okay. Now, I said a few minutes ago that uh, you're an important figure in ROH history, and, uh, and that's not hyperbole because the fact is, without you and, and a few others, uh, it's a very real possibility that there may not be an ROH today because you did play a critical role in Sinclair Broadcast Group buying the company from Kerry Silken. Now, again, for those who aren't familiar with that story, I know it's been told a few times publicly, but can you talk about that, how that whole deal uh, went down and the role that you played in it? Well, I'd, I'd, um, since WCW closed in 2001, uh, and then I had done some Lucha Libre events after that, but for a period of a few years, I had not been involved um, in, in the wrestling business, and uh, I missed it. And uh, one day I got in the car and I, uh, I live in Atlanta and I drove to Charlotte for an NWA Legends um, confab that Greg Price put together every summer. And I went because I just wanted to be able to say hello to a lot of my old colleagues and contacts in the industry. Uh, and I ran into Jim Cornette, with whom I'd always been friendly. And we chatted for a while and he told me that he was working with Ring of Honor. I had heard of Ring of Honor, but I had taken a break from wrestling and had not really followed the indie scene real closely. Um, but Jim and I started, we had a long conversations and he said, you know, you, you, you would really like the Ring of Honor. Uh, I think they could really use someone like you and uh, you should meet Carrie Silken. So um, I did. Uh, I flew up um, to, uh, to Philadelphia and actually my first event uh, that I saw was in Edison, New Jersey. And before the event, we all went out for Chinese food. It was Jim and uh, Carrie and, and Sid and Ross, who, who worked for Carrie at the time. And uh, Carrie and I hit it off. We, we, we became uh, instant friends and are, are good friends to this day. And I, um, uh, in the, in, in the, I had taken some, some DVDs with me and, and was very impressed with their, with their product. Their in-ring product was, was really good. It reminded me more of the old days, so to speak, uh, than, than other products. And um, Joe Coff and I had been uh, uh, friends and, and colleagues of sorts for many, many years. Uh, when I was um, with WCW in the early stages in 1989, Joe was the manager of WNUV, Channel 54 in Baltimore. And it was not owned by Sinclair at that time. Sinclair had, uh, had owned uh, WBFF, Channel 45, and had not yet expanded into the um, huge company that they are today. But Joe worked for a smaller company called Abray, and he was the general manager there. And um, we, we were both, you know, rather young men, and we had similar upbringings. We both loved wrestling uh, as a kid. We were passionate about it. Uh, Joe had uh, gone to many shows at Madison Square Garden uh, with Bruno San Martino being, of course, the the big hero, and I had gone to many shows in Minneapolis with Vern Gagne being the big hero. And we both loved uh, the pageantry, the athleticism, the drama. We, we were just big, big wrestling fans. And our show, of course, aired on Channel 54. So um, Joe and I worked together for many years when I was at WCW, Joe being station manager at, at several different stations, and we would always do promotions together. And um, he'd come to the matches and bring his kids to the matches. And even after WCW closed, Joe and I would stay in touch. We would talk about wrestling now and then. If I saw something interesting, I might, uh, you know, pass it his way. But um, 
I finally uh, went to him with, uh, uh, with, with the story about Ring of Honor and Kerry Silken and showed him the DVDs and Joe was impressed. And uh, Joe, uh, to his credit, started working behind the scenes at Sinclair to see if possibly there might be some interest. And it took quite a long time. It was probably um, uh, almost a year or so after I met up with Jim that um, we finally uh, finally made the, the introduction with Joe and, uh, and Carrie. And they also uh, kind of hit it off as being able to uh, really uh, respect one another's love of wrestling. Um, um, again, kind of we're all in the same age bracket, so to speak. And um, talks got underway from that point on. And um, lo and behold, uh, Sinclair uh, bought Ring of Honor, and here we are. Yeah, it's amazing that how one thing led to another. The fact that you had already known Joe, uh, Jim Cornette had an association with Ring of Honor. He knew you. The whole thing really just fell right into place. And it was perfect timing because I know in having talked to Carrie that uh, even though Ring of Honor was successful, it wasn't making him money at that point. He was losing money. And, and Sinclair was really a godsend. And, and I, again, I don't think it's hyperbole to say had that deal not happened, Ring of Honor probably wouldn't be here today. I mean, we don't know what would have happened, but I know that Kerry was uh, struggling with whether he should continue to uh, keep Ring of Honor going or not. And I know he, he told me that he did it just out of such a love for the business and for the company that even though it didn't make financial sense for him at that, at that point, he just couldn't uh, bring himself to shut it down. Right. Um, it, it was a hobby for Kerry. Kerry uh, was a, a very successful ticket broker and um, had, had, had the means to, to carry Ring of Honor, no pun intended, um, <laughs> even though it did lose money. Um, but he loved it and it was his passion. And yes, to, to your point, um, the losses were piling up and Kerry uh, was, you know, really, you know, really glad to have the you know have this opportunity and fortunately for Kerry not only was he able to sell the company but he's still uh, what we call the ambassador uh, he attends uh, most of the major events and uh, is still a part a part of Ring of Honor and is a kind of a much loved uh, character in Ring of Honor just because of his close relationship with the fans and the fact that he kept Ring of Honor going for as long as he did. Yeah, that was such a great decision on Joe's part. I'm assuming it was Joe's call uh, to keep Carrie involved with the company for all the reasons that you just said. Um, the fans knew Carrie. Uh, he was a, a link to the previous um, ownership of the company and, uh, and obviously a great ambassador. And, uh, you know, to this day, as Ring of Honor fans know, whenever the world title changes hands, there's Kerry, first person to jump in the ring and present the champion, the new champion with the championship belt. So it's, the, it's one of the coolest things, I think, about Ring of Honor that, uh, you know, a, a big corporation could have said, well, you know, thank you very much for the deal and, and uh, go on your way. But they didn't do that. So let me go back to uh, the very beginning with you, Gary, even before you got into the business. You've been involved in some really key moments in this business, as I've said. You've been instrumental in a lot of them. But we'll get to that later. I want to start at the very beginning. How old were you when you first became a pro wrestling fan? I was probably uh, six or seven years old, maybe maybe eight. I don't remember the exact year. But um, my parents uh, used to go out for dinner on Saturday evening. 
and they would um, leave my brother and me with a, a babysitter, an elderly woman, I'm probably younger maybe than I am at this time, but elderly to me. <laughs> and um, her name was Pat, and she loved wrestling. And Vern Gagne's uh, wrestling show, All-Star Wrestling in Minneapolis, uh, came on the air uh, Saturday evenings. Um, and she and I would watch wrestling every Saturday night. And I was just mesmerized by it. And the way Vern ran his promotion, he, his wrestling show that aired Saturday evenings, I believe at six o'clock, six to seven or 7.30, they were live from uh, what was then called the Calhoun Beach Hotel. That's where channel T WTCN Channel 11 was housed. And they would do the show live, and um, every four weeks they would have a live event after that at the Minneapolis Auditorium. So the, the live television show was used to promote the live house show coming up that night. And they may shoot an angle or they may do you know, something to, they, they would always do something to promote uh, that live show. And um, when, uh, when I would get up in the morning, um, my babysitter Pat, on those days that there were live shows, she would have the results written down for me so that when I got up in the morning, because um, she would have called the newspaper. The news, if you called the, the Minneapolis Tribune back in those days, late enough, you could get the wrestling results because the promoter would call them in for the little stories that ran the next day. And uh, I became hooked on wrestling, uh, as did many of my friends at that age. Um, they outgrew it for the most part, and I never did. That's, that brings true uh, very much with me, uh, similar. Six years old is when I discovered it. All my friends, or a lot of my friends liked it and, and grew out of it as we got older, and I never did. You know, my dad used to always ask me, when are you going to grow out of this? And, uh, you know, here we are all these years later and uh, still haven't. <laughs> Neither well, one of us, my, I guess, has grown out of it. My parents uh, disliked wrestling very much. Um, they didn't discourage me from liking it, but they certainly did not want to take me to those matches at the Minneapolis Auditorium. Yeah. Uh, I know my father took my brother and I maybe once or twice, but um, at great pains to him. They just, <laughs> they just, just never liked it. Uh, <laughs> so I was, I was not one of those people that got into the business uh, because it was in my family, as, right. as, as you know, many have done. Uh, I, I had to do it uh, clock you know, kind of clawing my way in uh, on my own. So, well, let's move on to that then. When did you decide that, that you wanted to work in the business? I'm guessing you didn't want to ever step into the ring and be a pro wrestler. Um, no, I, was, so I was never, um, I was never a, a, an athlete, you know, yeah. as a kid. Um, so, no, I, I never really had any realistic thoughts of being a wrestler, but I was always really um, interested in being, a behind the scenes promoter, producer, you know, someone who helped kind of turn those wheels, uh, whether it would have been in wrestling or music, because I was a, a huge uh, rock and roll fan. Uh, but I, um, I, always, I was always interested in, in getting involved on the business side and being kind of behind that curtain. And uh, the first time I really got involved uh, well, it was kind of twofold when I was in high school. Um, on the one hand, uh, I promoted a show uh, for a youth group uh, that I was involved with when I was 15 at a high school. It was a spot show. Um, 
I'm still shocked to this day that the Minneapolis wrestling office allowed me to do it because it was within the Minneapolis ADI. And normally the spot shows had to be outside of the twin cities outside of any of the major cities. Uh, but they let me do it. And I did another one. Uh, I was a junior class president uh, in high school at age 16. And I did, uh, I did another one then. And at the same time, uh, I was a big baseball fan. And every year I would buy a yearbook uh, that the Minnesota Twins put out. And I had an idea uh, to do a wrestling yearbook similar to the baseball yearbooks. So I started to hang out at the TV um, where they did the t live TV at the, uh, because they would do interviews there in the afternoon. And I would just kind of sit in the lobby. And uh, Nick Bockwinkle befriended me. I, I told him about this idea that I had for the yearbook, and he thought it was a great idea. And he um, suggested that I um, meet Vern Gagne. Uh, he kayfabe. He didn't tell me that Vern owned the territory. He just told me that since Vern was the champion, he had a lot of influence. And um, <laughs> he arranged for me to, to meet Vern, and Vern liked the idea. And uh, a buddy and I... Um, put out uh, a yearbook. It was the 1972 AWA yearbook. And then we did another one uh, two years later. And when I went to college in Washington, D.C., Vern put in a call to Vince McMahon, Vince, Vincent J. McMahon, uh, Vincent K. McMahon's father, yeah. who had uh, been the promoter on the East Coast and uh, actually did a yearbook for him back in uh, 75, 76. And that's, uh, that's how I started. I started very young. Wow. So I wasn't aware that you actually had in some way, I mean, that's a slight connection, but you actually did have a connection with the old WWWF as well. I knew about the AWA. I had heard you talk about that. I, obviously WCW, the NWA, ROH. I did not know that you actually had a connection to the WWWF. I, I went to school at uh, in DC at George Washington University, and I used to go to the wrestling shows that Vince, you know, Vince Senior, as they call him, but he really wasn't a senior because their, their middle names were different. Um, but I used to go to their shows, and he had a partner named Phil Zacco, and he was a crusty old guy. He was, uh, he was only about five feet tall, uh, almost that wide, and uh, he hated giving me free tickets, but he did it because Vince kind of almost made him. And he was just, a, like I say, a really crusty guy, never – Never had much time for me. Always dismissed dismissed me. Um, but when I finally did my first show in Baltimore, and I saw him after that, uh, he kind of put his arm around me and told me how proud proud of me he was. So, and I used to get a Christmas card from him every year. So, as much as he disliked giving me comp tickets when I was a kid, uh, we actually kind of, you know, became friends uh, in some way. And um, just one of the one of the crazy characters that uh, that I met along the way. Yeah, I didn't know Phil Zacco personally. I was just a kid going to the WWWF shows back in the Baltimore Civic Center back in the day. But uh, yeah, he was the Baltimore promoter and um, he certainly looked the part of a, of a crusty old promoter. I will say that much. I know I, he, you would see him walking around the building from time to time, but uh, never had the pleasure of, of meeting him. But he, if you think of a, I guess, a stereotype of a crusty old wrestling promoter, you would think of Phil Zacco for sure. Yes, Phil. Phil was a real character. Um, Vince, the old Vince, as you know, he had partners, and then uh, you know the current Vince bought them all out when he bought right. out the company. But Gorilla Monsoon was a partner. Um, Phil Zacco, of course, 
and I believe Arnold Skolin may have been a partner in some of the towns as well. And of course, Bruno was a partner in Pittsburgh. Correct. Right. All right. Well, Gary, this is already a fascinating conversation. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, though. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your start in Baltimore as the promoter for Georgia Championship Wrestling and later the NWA. We'll be right back with Gary Juster after this. I'm Maynard the Maltmaker. I am Mega the Bard. I'm Ander the Goliath. I'm Santi the Bard. I'm Sia the Wizard. And I'm Quinn McKay. And to see what character I'll be playing, you'll have to check out the next episode of Roleplay of Honor. Join these stars and more for Role Play of Honor. We're back on the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest today is the ROH Director of Operations, Gary Juster. Gary, you may not know this, but uh, I don't think I've ever told you this, but you played a pretty big part in, uh, in my life as a teenager, as a wrestling fan, because I grew up in Baltimore and I had been going to the Baltimore Civic Center every month to see the WWWF and, and never thought that I would ever see anything else live unless I were to take a road trip. Uh, I read the after mags religiously. So I knew about all the other territories. And then when I got cable, obviously, you know, I watched Georgia championship wrestling, but again, I never thought I would ever get to see, you know, Ric Flair and Tommy Rich and, and all these guys. Um, but then something pretty cool happened. And that was, um, in 1984, I think it was maybe February, it was announced that Georgia Championship Wrestling was actually going to be live at the Baltimore Civic Center. And you were the promoter. So how did this come about that, that Georgia, you were able to bring Georgia Wrestling to a traditional WWF city? When um, Channel 54 WNUV went on the air, uh, I drove up. And um, it wasn't owned by Abri at that time, Joe Koff's um, employer, whom I mentioned earlier. It was owned by a guy named Sam Kravitz. And Sam's nephew, Mark Saldich, was the program director. Mark and I were about the same age. I guess I was around 29 or 30 at the time. And um, I drove up there and I said, um, I asked him if he would be interested in having a wrestling show uh, on the station. And he said, absolutely. And he said, what, what time do you think would be a good time? And I said, well, how about Saturday at noon? He said, fine, we'll put you Saturday at noon. And in my briefcase, I had a tape from Joe Blanchard's uh, operation out of San Antonio. If you recall, Joe was the first guy to go live in the modern era. Yeah. In the 80s. Uh, he had the dream of being what Vince McMahon became, but Joe couldn't pull it off. But uh, somehow I'd gotten Joe's tape and I was going to put it on in Baltimore. And I, I said to Mark Saldich, do you want to see the tape? He said, no, I trust you. Uh, <laughs> whatever you send me, I'm sure will be fine. <laughs> and um, uh, what happened was, you know, I knew that we weren't going to be able to get anywhere with Joe. And um, finally I ended up with Ole Anderson's tape from Georgia Championship Wrestling. And just through my contacts with Vern and others, you know, promoters would take my call and the fact that I had TV in a market, you know, they liked. And um, so the TV ran for a while and we were, we were getting, you know, a decent rating and I wanted to do a live show. So I went to the Baltimore Civic Center and um, the, um, this, this, the arena back then uh, was, 
is, is still owned by the city. It's, it's not operated by the city anymore, but um, it was owned and operated by the city. Back in those days, a lot of cities operated their own arenas. And uh, these days, it's almost all private management. But um, I went to, Charles Neustadt was the director, and Barney Levengood um, um, was the assistant director. And I sat down with them, and I explained who I was, and that we had TV on Channel 54, and we also had uh, the show on cable, and I thought we could draw a house. And I had become a licensed promoter. I'd gone through all the machinations with the State Athletic Commission, and had gotten approved, and I was a licensed promoter. And I said, I'd like to do a, a show. And they said, well, we're sorry, but um, we've had WWWF, as it was called then, since the building opened. They come in almost once a month, and we really don't want or need any other wrestling. So I was disappointed, and I went home, and uh, I, by that time, I'd been a law school graduate. And um, I found a case, um, which actually later got overturned in, a, in an appeals court, but it looked good, and it was a case where a renegade football team called the Washington Stars um, sued RFK Stadium to get a date to play football there, and they actually won in the lower court. So I went back up to meet with um, uh, Charles and Barney in, uh, in Baltimore at the, at the arena, or the Civic Center, as they called it then. And I said, look, guys, I said, um, I've done some research. Uh, I said, I'm a lawyer by training. And I said, um, you guys are a city-owned and operated facility. And I said, if you won't give me a date, I'm going to have to take you to court uh, on an antitrust charge that you're conspiring uh, with uh, another promotion, it's restraint of trade. And I, I threw out every legal term I, that I could. And I had this case that I was waving in front of them and showing it to them. And they said, well, let it, we'll give it some thought. We'll talk to our attorneys and blah, blah, blah. Well, lo and behold, about two weeks later, they called me and they said, well, we'll give you a Thursday night in February. And I said, okay, I'll take it. So they caved. Um, I don't know that I ever would have sued them. I don't know if I would have even had the wherewithal to do it, but it worked. And I got the date and we did 8,000 people paid that night. And so it was just a huge success. And um, I guess... The rest is history, as the cliche goes. Absolutely. I was, uh, again, I have vivid memories of that night. I was in the front row. Got front row seats. I still remember the main event, Ted DiBiase against the masked Mr. R, who Tommy Rich. was Tommy Rich. Uh, you were yep. smart. You brought in Larry Zabisco to take on Bruno San Martino Jr. That, that, that? One, that one I actually, booked, so to speak, booked myself. That was uh -huh. not really part of Georgia Championship Wrestling. But Bruno, um, Bruno had served as a mentor to me. Um, I used to work uh, for a member of Congress, and I would spend, I got fired because I would spend like an hour a day on their Watts line talking with Bruno. Bruno uh, mentored me and just taught me a great deal about the wrestling business. I'll forever be grateful, and, uh, and I, I miss him terribly. Um, we were friends right up to the end. And, um, but, um, and of course, as you probably know, he and his son, David, uh, were estranged for years and years. I'm not even sure that they ever made peace before Bruno died, yeah. but, um, I knew Larry and, um, I, I arranged that match myself. Everything else was booked, of course, by Ole and we had the road warriors and Ron Garvin and, um, King Kong Bundy, and Jake Roberts. I mean, it was, 
the, the talent was just amazing. Yeah, I think uh, Stan Hansen was there, Wahoo McDaniel. <clears throat> it was yeah, amazing. And they, yeah, it was amazing. And, and what, was, what made it so good, and I think what made us successful there, and then we came back in April with Ric Flair for the first time against Jack Briscoe. It was the only time right. we ever had Jack Briscoe. He, he then went to WWE and then he retired. But what was so great about it is the wrestling fans in Baltimore had never seen that style of wrestling. I had gone, as you did, to many shows at the Baltimore Civic Center, and what wrestling fans would, uh, would call punch and kick was kind of uh, a style that was prevalent in, uh, in the WWWF, whereas the, the Georgia um, Championship Wrestling style, and, which was very similar to the Jim Crockett promotion style, was just a much... Uh, faster paced, more, uh, maybe more athletic based type of um, in-ring product. And the fans in Baltimore really took to it. They really did. I mean, which was amazing is that, you know, the WWF had been established there for so many years. Um, and here comes this new promotion. And it wasn't like people left the WWF to, to only go to see the NWA now or Georgia. They went to both. I mean, how yeah. much did that surprise you that Baltimore was able to support both companies? And, and uh, like you said, the first show drew 8,000 8, people. Were you shocked by that or, or did you kind of expect it? Um, I, you know what? I, I guess, I don't know if I was shocked. I, I certainly was surprised. Back in those days, um, at least half of the ticket sales were the day of the show. It's not like today where uh, you can basically see what your house is going to be by the advance uh, on the first day or so. Back then, what was so interesting was um, I would get a daily ticket count from um, the box office. And if we had a show on a Saturday night, I could take that figure I would get on Friday morning and basically double it. And that would be the house. Hmm. So, uh, but I didn't know that uh, on our first show. So the house basically doubled that eight. We had had 4,000 seats sold in advance, which I thought was a great advance. Um, but because uh, I would have been happy if we did, you know, another thousand. But, you know, as I said, we would normally double the house from the day before. So there was just all, always a big walk up. And as I say, it's not that way anymore with, um, with digital ticketing and such. But that's the way it was back then. So, yeah, I was, uh, I don't know if I was shocked, but I was, you know, I was, you know, very pleasantly surprised. And then we even did a bigger house, uh, you know, with Flair and Briscoe. Uh, and that was a Saturday night. They gave me a Saturday in April. I think the, I think the management there was pretty blown away by the whole thing. They were probably way more surprised than I was. I'm, I'm sure they were pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And you mentioned when you came back, uh, Jack Briscoe against Ric Flair for the NWA World Championship. Again, something only a few months earlier a longtime fan like myself just could have never fathomed that we'd be seeing that match in, in the Baltimore Civic Center. It was, like I said, surreal. Um, yeah, one of the, uh, what, I guess one of the proudest things about looking back about it was that we were the first uh, promotion to ever be able to run a show in one of Vince's home buildings. Uh, Ole and those guys, they'd run in Ohio and West Virginia, and that wasn't Vince's territory. And people might have run spot shows, of course, in, uh, in some of you know, the, the Northeast. There were always other promotions running. 
but no one had ever gotten into one of Vince's home buildings um, up along, you know, along the Eastern seaboard. Uh, we were the first to do that, which um, even today is a source of pride. Yeah, I remember thinking that at the time. Uh, NWA did eventually uh, branch out to places like Philadelphia and Washington and Boston and other traditional WWF uh, cities. But it, it really was like I couldn't figure out at the time why Baltimore was suddenly uh, on the wrestling map. It was, a, it was a great time to be a Baltimore wrestling fan. Yeah, and, and the reason for it was Baltimore was just was one of those kind of, I guess, the, the quote, perfect, you know, the, the perfect storm. I lived in the D.C. area, so uh, it was an easy drive for me. They had a brand new station going on the air. The program director was um, very excited and interested in having a wrestling show. And it was just one of those things that all came together. And then, um, you know, threatening the lawsuit was kind of the, the key to the whole thing. And they just didn't, they didn't want any trouble. They didn't, uh, they didn't want, they didn't want a lawsuit against them. And, um, and they gave in and, um, I promoted there right up through the end of the WCW days. Right. Uh, going back to that Flair Briscoe match, I'm sure you, uh, remember the blooper that's out there with Ole Anderson interviewing you. Um, I only remember it because, uh, at least two dozen people have sent it to me. The look on your face is classic when he can't remember your name. Um, Ole and I had um, a very interesting relationship. When I was young, uh, I think I was, I guess, 30 years old um, when we had that first show, and I'd never met Ole in person. And Ole, as you know, is a classic bully. Yeah. And back in those days, I was very much a hothead. Um, I, I've really mellowed out. Um, as I've gotten older and I have the, I have the benefit of perspective and a lot of other things that we get as, as we get older. But when I was young, uh, I thought I, I knew a lot more than I really did. And, um, I, 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 I got into a big fight with Oli on the first, um, the first show and was right in his face. And I think in retrospect, what that did is I think it gave him respect for me that I was willing to stand up, to him I could because see we we actually had a very good relationship um uh up until you know, in fact i saw him at that you know that that uh, nwa uh, legends thing and um uh, at that at that legends thing you know we um we talked and i said um i don't know if you know how how uh, cheap Oli was Oli would never Oli would never spend a dime on anything uh i remember one time in baltimore he came came in with this, it was cold and he had a coat and the sleeves were too short. It was an outer coat, it really looked horrible. <laughs> and he said, uh, I said, Oli, that coat doesn't even fit you. He said, well, I got it at the Salvation Army for $5. And that was, that was just Oli. His, uh, his favorite two words were, you buying? Because um, he never wanted to pay for a meal. But at that, um, at that NWA thing, I actually told him that, he, that we were gonna go to lunch and he was gonna pick up the tab. And sure enough, he, I think I'm probably the only person Oli's ever bought lunch for. And, I'm, and he was very private. I'm probably also the only person ever to have dinner at Oli's house. And the only reason for that is um, I was very friendly with Oli's then girlfriend, uh, Sharon Sidello, who uh, was a vice president at WCW. Um, a very capable woman. She was in charge of international at one time. She was in charge of marketing at one time. 
Yeah, I remember they that. Lived, when they lived together, they had a home up uh, on Lake Hartwell near the South Carolina border. And uh, one day Sharon said, Dana, why don't you come up for dinner? And uh, I had dinner with Sharon and Oli uh, at, at their home. So I think I'm the only person to ever have dinner in Oli's home and to have him buy me lunch. Um, but so, yeah, so Oli and I, um, you know, we had a, a good relationship. But sure enough, you know, shortly after uh, the first two shows in Baltimore, that's when um, uh, Vince um, bought Georgia Championship Wrestling. And uh, what do they call that? Black Saturday? Black Saturday. That was, yeah, that was going to be my next question to you is, is eventually Georgia Championship Wrestling ends because of Black Saturday. And yes. you transitioned over into promoting uh, Crockett's promotion. How did, how did you make that transition? Well, there, 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 was, there was some stuff in the interim. Um, Ole and his partner, Ralph Freed, um, started another company called Championship Wrestling from Georgia. And right. uh, Turner gave them a time slot as well not the prime time slot that uh, world championship wrestling had had, but uh, another time slot. So I did, sh I did a show with them in August and, and perhaps another one. Um, but I had, uh, by that time I had met Jim Crockett um, because he, he and Ole uh, were working together in terms of, of talent and whatnot. And of course he ended up buying that time back from um, you know the famous million dollar check that he gave to Vince to get back on to get back on Turner and and take Vince uh, and WWF off of uh, off of TBS, but we went through a lot of kind of various um, iterations and such in Baltimore before I ended up with Crockett. At one time, by this time, I had gotten a second hour of TV on Channel Fifty Four on uh, Sunday, right? Sundays at noon. Yeah. Um, and if you recall, uh, there was a time when I was getting one hour from Crockett and one hour from Vern. Right. And, uh, we would do, uh, joint shows. Usually we'd have six matches, three from Crockett and three from Vern. And, um, Jim Crockett and Vern Gagne did not get along. They didn't even speak. And I had to be the intermediary. And one day um, Crockett calls and says, look, I'm not doing this deal anymore with Ganya. You decide either you want to work with me and I'll send you the talent or you work with Vern. And I said, well, Jimmy, I said, it's really no choice. I said, your guys are drawing, Vern's are not. <laughs> so um, yeah. I, wrote, I wrote Vern a, a letter. Uh, and back in those days, you know, the, obviously no internet or email or even and I sent him a letter, a registered letter, uh, thanking him for everything, appreciating all he had done for me, blah, you know, blah, 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 but that I was terminating the relationship and uh, going to go with Jim Crockett. Well, Vern was livid. Vern didn't speak with me um, for several years after that. We later reconciled and our friendship resumed, but Vern was really, really angry. And um, uh, Vern has four kids. Vern had four kids. I don't know if you know much about the Ganya family. No. But, um, well, there was Greg, of course, who I'm sure you, you, you know. know I know of. he had a sister who married, what, Larry Zabisco, maybe? No, that was his daughter. Vern, yeah, yes, right. Larry's... Right, Greg's Vern sister. Had, right. Vern had three daughters, okay. uh, Kathy, Donna, and Beth. Okay. Uh, Larry was married to Kathy at one time. Um, they're not together anymore. Um, but, um, Beth Gagne was the youngest of the four 
and she was the one who carried grudges uh, um, throughout. In fact, I'm, I'm told that she was upset that Gene Okerlund spoke at Vern's funeral because Gene had gone to WWF and left mm. Vern. But Beth was a, a flight attendant for Northwest Airlines, and I flew them a lot because I would go from uh, D.C. back to my home in Minneapolis, you know, two, three, four times a year, whatever, um, and I'd fly Northwest Airlines. And shortly after this happened, and Vern uh, viewed me as a traitor of sorts, I was uh, on Northwest Airlines, and I was sitting in an aisle seat, like in the middle of the plane, and Beth Gagne was one of the flight attendants. And she was um, going up and down the aisle taking people's drink orders. And when she got to my seat, she took one look at me and just kept going. <laughs> <laughs> she, she would not take my order. <laughs> wow, well she did, take, she did take those grudges seriously. But it's funny that you and Vern eventually made up. Uh, we did, we did. We did. We eventually well, made it. I mean, from a business standpoint, it, it was had to be an easy decision. I mean, person, you know, whether your personal relationships aside, clearly the, the Crockett's were, were on the upswing and, and the AWA was starting to head in the other direction. Exactly. Exactly. So Baltimore quickly becomes a pretty important uh, city for the Crockett's. The first no, it was the second. The second Crockett Cup came to Baltimore. Um, how did that come about? That instead of Greensboro or, or Charlotte, that Baltimore actually got this huge event? I lobbied heavy, heavily for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I told uh, Jimmy that I could get the building for two days. Uh, I think I got a, a pretty good rent deal. I told them that I'd gone to the hotel next door and I'd worked out a package with them. I told them about all the publicity I could get in town. I told them about how the TV station was going to get behind it in a big way. Uh, I, I pushed hard for it. And, and by that time, Baltimore had become one of their best towns. And, um, and, and I think Jimmy always liked, he always liked to kind of, as he put it, stick it to Vince. Well, as it turned out, of course, Vince got the last laugh on all that. Right. But um, Jimmy liked poking him. So that might have been a part of it as well. But um, yeah, I, 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 I lobbied hard to have it in Baltimore. It was uh, something that I really wanted to do. Well, and, and once you started bringing not just uh, the Crockett's, but also the end, uh, Georgia to Baltimore, you know, we, we were used to never seeing, uh, we got used to the fact that we would never see a title change hands except for, you know, the very famous superstar Billy Graham defeat of Bruno, yes. uh, April yes. 30th, 1977, the day that will live in infamy. Um, with, his feet, with his feet on the ropes. With his feet on the ropes, yes. Horrible yeah. rule breaker that yeah. he was. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the titles always changed hands at Madison Square Garden. Tag yes. titles would change hands on TV at like Allentown, Pennsylvania. Or yes. every once in a while, the spectrum might get a title change. But for Baltimore, we just knew that it was not going to happen. Yet, for some reason, we still went month after month watching Backlund and, and Bruno defend the title, suspending our disbelief that, hey, maybe the title will change hands tonight. But right. all of a sudden, with the NWA, I think Ronnie Garvin beat Jake Roberts, I think, for the national title. And then after that, we just saw – titles changing hands semi-regularly and um, 
Uh, we get a big event like the Crockett Cup. So it, it, it almost felt to us in Baltimore like it was almost the center of the, the wrestling universe at that time. Um, one of the most amazing moments, I think, uh, for a lot of people at that Crockett Cup in Baltimore was uh, the return of Magnum T.A., walking down the aisle uh, several months after his automobile accident and, and hugging uh, Nikita Koloff and, and Dusty Rhodes. Um, that's, I remember being there and it just, it was one of those things that kind of sent chills down your spine. Do you, do you have any, any like vivid memories of that? I remember it well. Uh, and I had the same uh, chills and maybe even a few tears. Mm-hmm. Um, it was extremely moving. Uh, Magnum, um, had been a big, um, big, big star, as you know, uh, with the Crockett organization and the NWA probably would have been a future champion. I think he was, he was being groomed to be, um, you know, possibly a, uh, a world champion. Um, so yes, that was, um, that, that was just an incredibly touching moment. One other question I want to ask you about, uh, the, the, WCW days actually was, uh, no, actually it was still the NWA, 1988. We got our first pay-per-view in Baltimore, uh, which was the Great American Bash, the famous uh, Ric Flair versus Lex Luger world title match. Um, The way this was built up, by this point, I was pretty, um, I don't want to say smart to the business, but I, I, you could kind of tell when a title was going to change hands. And I was certainly convinced that Lex Luger was walking out as the new world champion that night. It just seemed like that was the buildup, but that didn't happen. We had the, referee stoppage for the speck of blood that was on Lex Luger's forehead, which was puzzling to all of us fans in Baltimore because we had seen uh, some blood baths in both uh, the NWA and in uh, the WWF. Um, that finish, uh, what, what do you like? Do you recall what went into that decision to have uh, the old, the Maryland state athletic commission officials call for the call for the bell? Yes, I remember it very well. <laughs> uh, as you will recall, um, that was during the time when um, uh, the AIDS uh, epidemic had, had been really on the forefront. And um, the Maryland State Athletic Commission had issued an edict that um, there was that blood in professional wrestling was to be banned, uh, whether it was self-induced or hard way, but there would be no blood in a wrestling ring. And if there was, the match would immediately be stopped. Um, So um, this was a a rather new uh, regulation or order at that time. So uh, what they wanted to do uh, was they wanted to get some color on Lex, who by the way, had never done it before and was very squeamish and didn't do it. Actually, I don't know if you if you recall and knew this, but it was actually JJ that um, that, that that did it. Um, and it was like I say, just a speck of blood. But there was a really nice uh, what they called inspector. The Maryland Athletic Commission um, would would send uh, one of their people to the shows to 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 supervise the show, and they were called inspectors. And uh, there was a really nice guy, Ray Iannucci, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, a really, really lovely guy. And we went to Ray and said, look, we know, we know what the rule is on the commission, but we want to get 
just a little bit of color on Lex, and then we want you to stop the match um, in accordance with the commission rules. And he agreed to do it. And um, that's exactly what happened. I got a little bit of color on Lex. Uh, Ray jumped up and said, you know, it's a violation. The match has to stop. And one of the reasons I believe that they wanted to do that finish was, if you'll recall, house shows back then were still the bread and butter for, for wrestling. Right. Pay-per-view was, was new. Um, not that many people even, you know, cable was still in, in kind of its infancy and pay-per-view certainly in its infancy. So house shows were really where the, where the money was. And the Crockett's uh, at that time, you know, had these really good, good wrestling towns. Uh, like you mentioned, Greensboro, Charlotte, Greenville, uh, Richmond, Norfolk. Um, and these were, you know, good, good towns for them. And what they would do after that finish in Baltimore is when they would do the local promos, say in Richmond, for example, they would say something to the effect of, we have the rematch here in Richmond next Saturday night. And here in Virginia, we don't stop, we don't stop the match if there's blood. There, there will be a finish, you know. It'll be one fall to a finish, blood or no blood. And sure enough, it drew big money everywhere because in those towns, uh, there was no problem with the commission. Um, and they could have the bloodbaths that we used to see in Baltimore. Right. And that was, uh, that was the story. That's, you know, that, I think that's the first time I've ever really heard the story explained. So, uh, I learned something today. That's, I, I never, uh, could figure out why, um, I mean, obviously I knew it wasn't a shoot. I, I figured that was the planned finish. Uh, but just the speck of blood on Lex's head, uh, always, always caught me as uh, strange. Uh, so now I know though. So it was JJ who, uh, who facilitated that. Maybe it would have been better if Lex would have done it himself. I don't think, yeah. And, and I guess one could ask Lex, but um, I guess he just, like say he was too squeamish to do it. He was not about to put a blade to his head. Right. All right. Well, we're going to take another quick break. We'll get back. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about the uh, WCW days. And we're with Gary Juster right after this. Hi, I'm Quinn McKay, the host of Ring of Honor's weekly YouTube show, Week by Week. Join me every Monday, the same day as this podcast, as we catch up on all the groundbreaking ROH news and get some exclusive comments from some of your favorite stars. We also have some really great weekly segments like Question of the Week and my personal favorite, the Week by Week Physique. Join me every Monday at 1 p.m. on social media and youtube.com slash Ring of Honor for Week by Week. All right, we're back on the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest today is the ROH Director of Operations, Gary Juster. We've talked about your Georgia Championship wrestling days and your days with the NWA and Crockett. Let's now head on to uh, the WCW years. Uh, Crockett sells the company to Ted Turner. Uh, and once again, you, you make the transition. You, you go along. Uh, you actually became more than a promoter with WCW, though, correct? You... you had a job there as an employee um at what yes well um when when they took over the um the crockett promotion um they made all of us employees so um i was a promoter there but i was no longer an independent at-risk promoter i was an employee 
uh, I had incentives as a promoter there. Uh, I would make, um, make money as the houses made more money. But, um, I but I was a Turner Broadcasting employee. Now, what were some of your, uh, I guess, favorite memories from those early days uh, of the Ted Turner regime? Um, we, you know, we were able to, um, you know, to kind of, um, I'm trying to think of, of the right, of the right, uh, right phrase. Uh, we were able to kind of take it up a notch, uh, production wise. Uh, you know, we had a much bigger budget. Uh, we were now part of a, uh, of, of a national organization. So we now had, had deep pockets, um, but right from the start, uh, it, it was it was difficult um, because you know they chose uh, well they just the, the higher ups at Turner really didn't know anything about wrestling, and that's dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous when they you know it's the old cliche just having enough knowledge to be dangerous. So um, you know the guy that they put in charge was a nice guy named Jack Petrick. He had been a longtime Turner executive. And he had been uh, a station manager in St. Louis at KDNL, which oddly enough is now a Sinclair-owned uh, Sinclair station, um, Channel 30 in St. Louis. And Jim Hurd had been a general manager at uh, one of the affiliates, Channel 11, KPLR. And that was the um, station where Sam Muchnick had his uh, wrestling show, Wrestling at the Chase, probably one of the highest rated uh, pro wrestling shows in the country. And Jack Petrick just figured, uh, well, Jim Hurd might be a good guy to come in and run WCW uh, because he was general manager of KPLR where Sam Muchnick's wrestling show aired. Um, but Jim Hurd was uh, difficult, to say the least. Yeah, I think one, one of my recollections from back in the day is just that um, you mentioned the production values. And I think sometimes things can become maybe a little too good from as far as production standpoint or too slick because I think a lot of the appeal with the Crockett promotion was it felt real and and gritty um you know I don't I don't know if, I don't I want to say blood and guts but I don't mean that in a derogatory way uh it was a nice contrast to the very slickly produced WWF and I didn't really um prefer one or the other. I love them both. And I like that they both, they both brought different things to the table and I appreciated the differences. Uh, but it seemed like once Turner got the company, um, again, it just seemed, it felt like it lost a little bit of that gritty element to it. Did you see it, it that did. way? It, it did. There's no question that it did. And as things progressed with Turner, um, we were under the control, so to speak, of standards and practices, a division within Turner Broadcasting to oversee and kind of self-regulate content on their, on their channels so that um, certain things perhaps that bookers wanted to do were overruled by standards and practices. And that, that uh, made it frustrating as well. Sure. So when you got into promoting, it was at the time when the 80s boom was happening. So, and again, we were talking about it earlier, the, the WWF was on fire, the NWA, the Crockett promotion was on fire. Um, and then after that, as you know, obviously the business is cyclical 
and there was the lull that follows. So when you went to WCW, there were some lean years at the beginning, lean by, I guess, where the business had been. Uh, but then the Monday Night Wars happened. And you could argue that the boom in the mid-90s and late 90s was even bigger than the one in the 80s. And you were there for that as well. Did you ever think that um, after you saw sort of the drop-off from the 80s boom, did you ever think wrestling would get back to those heights again? Um, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if I really thought it, it, it would or it wouldn't. Uh, obviously, I was, you know, really glad. Uh, and I apologize now for my dog making noise. Um, um, I was, you know, obviously, you know, very, very pleased with that. And um, uh, those were some of the, you know, some of the great years, uh, you know, in my career. Uh, not, not only, of course, that we were beating them in the ratings, but as a live event promoter, um, I was able to get into buildings um, where in the past sometimes the uh, managers would not even return my calls because they were in WWF's pocket. Um, I was getting calls from people who wanted the Monday Nitro show. Um, I, was, uh, I was able to get through to virtually any arena manager that, that I wanted to. And in, in certain towns uh, where WWF had exclusives, we would go to, uh, to domes. Uh, in St. Louis, they had an exclusive at the New Keel. So we went to what was then called the TWA Dome and did 31,000 people. We never could have fit that into, uh, into the arena. Wow. Uh, in in, um, in uh, New Orleans, we went to the Georgia Dome. I'm, I'm sorry, to the... Um, Superdome, right? To, to the Superdome, thank you. Um, and, and, and we had, you know, a big house there and we would, uh, we would customize the domes and kind of retrofit them. So we would create an arena within the dome in a corner of it so that, uh, we could fill that part of it and, it, and we wouldn't have a big empty dome. So those were really, um, heady days, uh, for us and not just for the TV ratings, but for the houses that we were drawing. That Georgia Dome show that had Hogan and Goldberg, I mean, that drew like, how many people did that? That was like, was it like 40,000 people? That drew just under 40,000 people and just under a million dollars, which was wow. huge at that time. Yeah, that really, that's amazing. Um, that's yeah. big business. And it's like, yeah. you know, a lot of times you hear the old timers when they talk about uh, their glory days, it's like, yeah, every night was sold out. You know, that show was sold out. We came back next month. So, and a lot of times it's, it's exaggeration and embellishment, but oh, during the Monday were, night wars, WCW was literally selling out everywhere. Yeah. I remember it was funny because I used to go to the cauliflower rally club and see a lot of the old guys and not, not only were they all sold out, but they were always, always in the main event. Right. <laughs> Any, and I know this is a broad question, but, um, Obviously, that was such a crazy time, the Monday Night Wars, when WCW was thriving. Any particular moments from that run that stand out to you, whether it was a, a funny story or just uh, a vivid memory? Well, one of them was, as I mentioned, St. Louis. The guy who ran the keel there was a guy named Roger Dixon. He was a nice guy, and I used to call him to try and get dates there, and he would never give us a date. So when we finally did the... Um, the dome show there, which drew the 31,000 on a Monday night in early December, which is not exactly the best time uh, traditionally for a live event, but that's just how hot we were. And I remember uh, seeing Roger at a, uh, I think at the um, arena managers meeting shortly thereafter or whatever, and going up to him and um, kind of, again, I was kind of it was smirking and 
I thank I thanked him for keeping us out of his building because I said, you know, we never could have fit the thirty one thousand in your building, Roger. <laughs> so, uh, so it gave me a, a sense of satisfaction uh, to do that. And, and and I guess the other the other part that was just so satisfying was going to buildings that had never even given us the time of day because Vince had them locked up and going in there and selling them out. Um, and, and, one, and one of my great memories, uh, we, we, you probably remember this, we, we, had a, uh, we had a promoter, a great promoter, Zane Bresloff, and I could tell Zane's stories all day long. He was really a character. But what Zane came up with was sending talent uh, to be in the lobby of the arena on the day that we would go on sale for a big event. Um, and it was huge. We used to send Randy Savage a lot and others, and we'd just get, you know, several hundred people lining up to buy tickets. And I remember um, we were the first wrestling event at the, what was then the new building in downtown DC, uh, what was then called the MCI Center. Um, it's actually where AEW had their uh, inaugural event. And our first show there was um, uh, Hogan versus uh, Goldberg. And I remember standing in the box office standing over a computer as it went on sale, watching the event minute by minute go up like a thousand tickets here, a thousand tickets there to the point wow. where after, after the first hour, it was virtually sold out. And it was just uh, an incredible thrill to be doing that. Oh, I could imagine. Well, as they say, though, um, and as I said earlier, the business is cyclical. And, and once a business, obviously, once it reached those heights, it was bound to, at some point, um, you know, I guess sort of level off. Unfortunately, with WCW, it leveled off uh, pretty drastically. And we know what happened at the end of, uh, well, early 2001, March 2001. Uh, obviously, the company was, was bought by Vince McMahon. Um, so I have to ask you, for you personally, so you started, you know, your first big show back in Baltimore in 1984. Now it's 17 years later, a little more than 17 years later. Uh, you make the transition to, to the NWA and the Crockett's. You did some AWA. You're with WCW. WCW now shuts down. Um, and for the first time, you're, I guess, not involved in the wrestling business. So what was your, what, I mean, what were your thoughts at that point? And what did you do right after that? I know eventually you promoted some Lucha shows in, in Georgia, correct? Yeah. And I knew um, uh, that WCW was was shutting down uh, a couple months beforehand. Um, I had um, I, I had people that I knew uh, uh, who were pretty high up in Turner, who had access to a lot of information. So I, I, knew, I knew it was coming. And um, the last year or so uh, of WCW was really trying. Uh, when they brought uh, Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo back and Frankly, I was surprised at that point that they didn't just let me go because we were running very few live shows and uh, uh, I had had my issues uh, with some of them. But whatever, they, they, they didn't fire me and I wouldn't quit because uh, I wanted to get my severance as I knew it was the bill, as I knew that you know, it was going to close. Um, so when it, when it did finally close, I, I was pretty burnt out there. Those last couple years were... Um, we're really trying. And, uh, I had just kind of had enough 
and uh, I got 13 months severance. So um, I rested for a while <laughs> um, and, and was just kind of glad to be out from under all of it. Um, but I did, um, uh, I had uh, many contacts um, in Atlanta where I had lived out for a long time. And um, I did, um, I was working with a guy named Lynn Friedman, who was a local uh, promoter and media buyer. And we did, uh, we did some rodeo dates. Uh, I had a gig for a circus for a while, booking dates for them. Um, I got involved in some, you know, local business ventures here in Atlanta. And, uh, and then I met a, uh, a, a wealthy Mexican entrepreneur, a really great guy named Roberto Sanchez. And uh, with him, uh, we started to do um, a handful of Lucha Libre shows for a couple of years, which were a lot of fun. Yeah, our, it's funny. We were at different points, certainly, in, uh, in our respective career paths. You were, that last year of, of WCW, you were, as you said, you were kind of fed up or burnt out, and uh, it, was a, it was a bad year. It, this was my entrance into uh, working on the other side. Uh, I, had, as you know, I'd been a media member with the Baltimore Sun and writing about wrestling for all those years. But in 2000, I was hired as the editor of WCW Magazine. So I'm all happy that I'm finally, you know, I finally hit the big time. I'm in WCW. Um, I started in March of 2000, and almost to the day, I, I lasted about one year to the day. Uh, March 2001, it all ended. Um, so that that one year for me was my only year at WCW. So I never got to be there for the good times. Uh, but you know, I just tried to make the most of the bad times. And um, you know, you had your your information that you got from the Turner higher ups for people like me. The employees, all we knew were the rumors and, and the speculation. And we were getting news from, you know, the, the wrestling observer and things like that because we just didn't know what was going on. Um, but, yeah, I don't think it was a surprise to any of us when the, when the company eventually shut down. I think we were surprised that, uh, at least I was, that it went to WWF. But that was, uh, that was a surreal time for sure. Yeah, I um... – my, uh, my then girlfriend uh, actually worked in Ted Turner's personal office. Uh, she was one of four women that worked, it worked as Ted's personal assistants. Um, so I, I, I got a lot of information coming my way. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like I said, we, we sort of saw the, the writing on the wall. I think it was uh, wishful thinking that maybe we could go on, but I think all of us kind of knew that that wasn't going to happen. Even if uh, Vince hadn't bought the company, we figured it's either going to just shut down or if, if you remember when Eric was putting his group together, he was working with a group called Fushant um, and it actually came in and, and started doing the due diligence. He was, as you know, as you'll remember, he was in the office uh, planning to take over. Uh, us at the magazine, we didn't know what that meant for us because we thought, well, just because you know, Bischoff gets the company. That doesn't mean we're all going to have jobs. He might not need a magazine because the, the word was they were going to, you know, cut costs or would he want to bring in somebody else to do a magazine? So I, I just tried to enjoy it while I was, while I was there and it makes for good memories. And, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't have gotten other jobs in the business had I not had that one year of WCW experience. So, you know, well, I Kevin, I'm, glad, I'm, fondly. I'm, 
I'm glad for you that you had a good experience in that year because I would say that you may be the only person who had a good experience in that particular year. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, well, let's move ahead now to Ring of Honor. It's funny, our, our paths keep crossing, Gary. You as the promoter, me as a fan back in Baltimore, uh, me as a media member and you as the promoter and you um, helping facilitate me to write articles and then you know, we, we briefly end up in WCW together. Um, and now here we are in Ring of Honor. Uh, I just want to ask you this, just as a, as a fan, um, not necessarily as a Ring of Honor employee, but as a fan, what do you appreciate about what uh, Ring of Honor brings to the table as a product? When I first saw Ring of Honor, uh, way back when, when we talked about it, what really impressed me and what I really liked was the in-ring product. Uh, it, even though wrestling had evolved uh, significantly from the days that I started as a kid, as a fan, and then as a promoter, uh, and then WCW, then to now, you know, the products evolved uh, just significantly. Uh, if you watch matches from the 50s, they're much different than matches from the 80s, which are much different from matches uh, currently. But the in-ring product of Ring of Honor is what I always really appreciated and what kind of got me excited about it in the first place. Um, so I'd say, and, and to this day, and of course, as, as you know, right now, we've been dormant just um, out of concern for safety. But um, we still have some absolutely you know, phenomenal in-ring performers. And um, that, that's, that's, to me, what always made Ring of Honor stand out. No question about it. Um, we've talked throughout this, uh, this entire podcast about your involvement in, in some of these, uh, you know, big moments uh, in pro wrestling. And there was one other one that I wanted to mention, which you did allude to earlier, which was All In, which uh, will go down in history as the biggest independent show um, of all time. Uh, back when Cody was still working with us in, in Ring of Honor, uh, I interviewed him uh, actually for a piece in the Sporting News. And, um, you know, we were talking about how the event came together. And one of the people he gave credit to was, was you uh, for kind of helping them. Uh, and I guess in a, a number of different ways, but the least of which wasn't, you know, how to, how to uh, line up a building. Um, can you just talk about your involvement as far as All In was concerned? Yeah. Um, uh, because of my experience in dealing with uh, arenas and, and, and arena managers and, um, making deals with arenas, um, I was able to, to make the deal um, with the Sears Center, with, um, with the general manager there, um, do the ticketing, scale the house, uh, basically do, um, do the, you know, all the, the back of, uh, the front of house rather, front of house um, type duties that have to be done to, to put an event in place. So yes, I, I did that. And uh, as you know, it turned out to be you know, a huge, huge, huge success. Um, I, I think in terms of, of, um, of indie events, um, one of the Lucha shows that we did, um, first Lucha show we did at, at the Gwinnett Arena, which is now called the Infinite Energy Center in Duluth. I think at that time we did 4,300 people paid. I think at that time it might've been the largest, um, independent show, um, okay. in the day, but yes, all in certainly, certainly eclipsed that, uh, and, and it sold out, uh, I think, in you know, less than an hour. Or so that, um, yeah, that that was very exciting. 
I was just curious, since we were talking about Cody, uh, were you, did you have a good relationship with Dusty, Dusty Rhodes? I did. I did. Um, uh, my, my, my glory days, so to speak, that, I, that we talked about in Baltimore, the Crockett Cup, for example, those were all um, things that were, um, that were booked by Dusty. And uh, yes, we, we went, Dusty and I went through a lot together and um, learned a great deal from him. And um, really saddened uh, when he died and uh, think, of, think of him often. I'm assuming maybe that's uh, one of the reasons Cody felt so comfortable with you uh, working with him for All In, I'm going to guess. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm, to this day, I'm friendly with his mom, Michelle, who, whom, I, I'm, whom I'm very fond. Um, um, always had a good relationship with Dustin as well. So, um, yes, I um, always, always um, appreciated my, um, my friendship with the Rhodes family. Well, the last question I'm going to ask you before we get to our 10 question segment is um, MSG, G1 Supercard, April of 2019. Um, obviously, a huge show for Ring of Honor for New Japan Pro Wrestling. The NWA and WCW never made it to MSG, but Ring of Honor did. Uh, what was that moment like for you to see a, a sold out house at Madison Square Garden and be a part of well, it? Uh as our GM, Greg Gilliland, likes to say, um, you know, I, I would often tell him I never thought that I'd be involved in an event at the Garden. Um, I had done some shows um, at the Garden with WCW in, in, the, in the theater next door, uh, which, they, which they would give us, but it was never the Garden. So it was, um, it was a thrill, a big thrill, to finally be uh, doing a show in the Garden. Um, I had been... Um, in contact with um, Sal Federico, who uh, is vice president of entertainment events at the Garden for quite some time, actually, before this. Um, he and I would get together uh, when we had shows uh, at the Hammerstein Ballroom. He, he and I got to know each other. He's a big wrestling fan. And then he introduced me to Dylan Wanagiel, who's vice president of sports promotions at the Garden, also a big wrestling fan. So um, uh, it's a relationship that... Um, that I was glad to, to kind of have built um, whether or not we were ever going to get a date there. Um, one of the things that I always enjoyed about my part in the business was building relationships with arena managers uh, just because I love that part of the business. I always love live events and all the machinations that go on in putting together a live event. Um, so uh, when it came time um, to do an event in New York, uh, during WrestleMania weekend that year, um, I was actually rather shocked that uh, Dylan and Sal, we all had lunch and they said, well, what would you think about doing an event in the garden? And I thought, wow, <laughs> we would love, we would love that. And, and sure enough, you know, we were able to do it. So it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a big thing. All right. Well, we have reached uh, the end of this part of the podcast. We're now going to do our famous uh, 10 question segment. So, Gary, if you'll hang on after this break, we'll do 10 questions. Welcome, Ring of Honor fans. It is our distinct pleasure to bring to you not only 18 years of great professional wrestling, the best professional wrestling on the planet, but tonight, a very important topic. It is the first of many ROH roundtables, and tonight, we're going to be discussing Black Lives Matter, police brutality, 
and what it means to be black in professional wrestling, race and racism in the sport that we love. ROH Roundtable, now available on youtube.com slash ring of honor. Welcome back to the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest today, ROH Director of Operations, Gary Juster. Gary, are you ready to play 10 questions? I am ready. I'm not sure I'll have the answers to all of them, um, but uh, go ahead. We'll, we'll give well, it a try. Well, we're going to make this wrestling centric. I made it wrestling centric for you today. Uh, we're not going to do <laughs> our, our normal questions of, you know, what's your favorite movie and things of that sort. It's all wrestling questions. And it is now time for 10 questions with Kevin. So question number one, what's the best advice you've been given in the wrestling business and who gave it to you? Uh, Nick Bockwinkle gave me the best advice and uh, it was something to the effect of um, don't, um, uh, don't lose sight of other things in life uh, and be so tunnel visioned when it comes to wrestling. Sound advice. Number, question number two. I'm going to turn that question around a little bit. What, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to break into the business, but maybe on the promotional side or just not as a wrestler? Uh, what advice would you give to them? Uh, study marketing, studying social media, uh, study the wrestling business, the ins and outs of it. So, uh, so that you know, uh, so that you have um, subject matter knowledge and uh, pick and choose your fights carefully. That is tremendous advice, especially that last part. Um, I think that's a good lesson for all of us. Question number three, who was the person that smartened you up to the business? Blackjack Mulligan. Oh, wow. <laughs> What's the story there? We were... Um, it was, let's see, it was probably in the early 80s. I had graduated from law school. I was working in politics, but I really wanted to get into wrestling. Um, uh, I somehow got involved with um, a little group out of Pennsylvania where Bruno San Martino was advising and um, Blackjack Mulligan was helping out with the booking and he and I used to talk all the time and he's the one that kind of um, gave me the kind of wink wink type stuff. Gotcha. He was certainly an intimidating presence, that's for sure. He was, I, I, I used to talk on the phone uh, almost every day and I, I learned a great deal from him as well. Question number four, did you ever at any point in your career have thoughts of going to work for WWE? Um, not really. I was courted by them on a couple of occasions, but I liked my situation so much uh, that I really never considered it. Okay. Question five, and this is one I'm really curious to hear the answer to, is you've got so many great stories and so many experiences in this business. Will you ever write an autobiography? I don't know the answer. Okay. You write it, I'll buy it. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Question number six, and maybe this is something you would want to save for that book if you ever write it, but do you have a favorite Ric Flair story, one that would be suitable for all audiences to tell? 
Well, there are a lot that are, are not suitable, uh, and, 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 you, and, and you know of many of them. Yes. The, the one that he always reminds me of whenever I see him, because I'll bump into him occasionally. I saw him at the Atlanta airport shortly before the pandemic, and I'd see him at you know, the WrestleMania weekend things. But at the Crockett Cup, I got a call at about 2 a.m. to come over to the hotel because his credit card was tapped out and he was in trouble. He owed a lot more and I needed to bring my credit card over to bail him out. <laughs> I don't think you were alone in having to do that over the years. No, and, and he still laughs about it all the time and loves to, loves to tell Wendy, his wife, about it. Right. I'm sure she's heard the story many, you know, many, many times. And, I, and actually, the other probably really favorite Ric Flair story is that um, my mother's uh, doctor, her OBGYN, was Dr. Richard Flair, Rick's dad. So I was actually delivered by uh, Dr. Rick, Dr. Richard Flair, Rick's dad, his adopted dad. Rick was adopted. No kidding. But, but um, um, I'll show you my birth certificate sometime with Dr. Richard Flair's signature on this is, you know what, this is almost like, um, I, don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean this uh, to, to demean you when I make this uh, analogy. It reminds, your experiences remind me of the Forrest Gump movie, where, not that, not that you're mentally challenged, but like he was part of all these world famous events. And it's like, that's what I think of, you're involved in so many things, to the point that Ric Flair's father delivered you. That's yeah. amazing. That might be yeah. the most impressive story you have. Yeah. I mean, so you were literally born to be in the wrestling business. Perhaps. <laughs> All right. Question number seven. Uh, were you at the final Nitro in Panama City in uh, March of 2001? And if so, uh, what do you remember most about that night? I was not there. Okay. Were you watching at home when uh, Shane McMahon walked out in Panama City? I was. What was your thought watching it at home? It was painful. Yeah. I tell you, I was there in Panama City, and I was actually trying to suspend disbelief that it was a shoot and that Shane was going to give us all jobs, even though I knew that wasn't true. I was kind of trying to hold on to that. Yeah. All right, question number eight. Which wrestler that you've known is most like his uh, in-ring persona? So where there's not much difference between the gimmick and real life. Um, Ric Flair uh, always lived the gimmick. Yeah. Uh, as did Terry Funk. Okay. Yeah, I've heard Terry talk about that. That uh, especially when he was a heel, that you don't you don't become a heel when you walk into the arena. You become a heel as soon as you walk out of your house. So that if fans see you, you're you know they they're what you expect them. To be. I still I still talk with Terry somewhat regularly, and he's still exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten a chance to. That's one of my favorite things is I've gotten a chance to pick the brain of of uh, Terry Funk a couple of times, and uh, not only uh, it, just great to sit and talk to him and hear him tell stories, but a nicer man you would never meet. Right. Question number nine. I'll ask the flip side of that: Which wrestler was least like? his in-ring persona that you've known? Uh, well, there were wrestlers who just played characters, um, a whole slew of them. You know, George Steele, for example. Sure. 
uh, was nothing like, uh, Jim Myers was nothing like George Steele. Um, uh, Mark Merrow was not like Johnny B. Bad. Um, and, and as a kid uh, who was not smart to the business and would sometimes run into a wrestler in Minneapolis, the, the bad guys were often nicer in person than the good guys. So that was, um, that was sometimes a case where uh, they were nothing like their, their in-ring persona. Well, let me ask you this. I had a friend who grew up in the uh, AWA territory, and I can't remember if it was Minneapolis or, or where it was, but he knew some people, you know how it goes, he knew some people who knew some people behind the scenes back in the, I guess the 80s, 70s or 80s. And he was told that the heels in the AWA were the nicest guys and the baby faces were the jerks. So I don't know if, if, if you had any experience like that when you were uh, associated with the AWA, but that's what he said. Yes, um, I, I, yes, I, I did and that, uh, that was accurate. Okay. All right, our final question, question number 10. Um, this is my favorite question. I've been waiting this entire interview really to ask it. We're really gonna check and see how good your memory is on this one, Gary. At the very first Clash of the Champions, the main event was Ric Flair defending the World Championship against Sting. There were five judges at ringside uh, scoring the match just in case it would end in a draw. You were one of them. Do you remember who the other four judges were? How many of them can you name? Well, I'm going to correct you. There were only three judges. Oh, I thought there were five. There were other people sitting at ringside. There were only three of us who had votes. Oh, okay. It was Jason Hervey, um, Patty Mullen, Penthouse Pet, and myself. And uh, um, Eddie, um, Eddie Haskell, I'm trying to think of his... Um, his real name. Eddie Haskell, of course, was the lead. Kenny Osmond. Kenny Osmond was one of them sitting with us. I don't remember the fifth one sitting with us. It was um, Sandy Scott. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm, you, you've, you've refreshed my memory. Um, uh, Sandy, I believe, I'm trying to think of who the three judges were. I thought maybe Sandy was one of the judges. But anyway, there was three I think, yeah, I think it might have been Sandy, uh, Patty, and I that were the judges, and then maybe just Jason and um, Kenny Osmond were the guests. But I'll tell you something that always bothered me about that, and uh, that was still the kayfabe era, in my opinion. Yes. And they had a meeting beforehand, and they told us how to vote. And I was disappointed that they told Patty Mullen, the penthouse pet, how to vote because all they would have had to do is let her vote first, and then our votes could have then uh, been adjusted to get them the, the finish that they wanted, and they would not have had to have smartened her up. And to this day, that always bothered me. <laughs> well, <laughs> the funny thing that always struck me about that was the judges were there, uh, so we'd have to get a decisive finish, right? And it still ended in a, in a draw. Which well, it's, re it's wrestling. Yeah, kind of defeated the, the, the whole purpose, but yeah. Well, yeah, obviously you and Sandy Scott, certainly uh, reputable judges, but very questionable, very questionable the penthouse pet being on the, uh, on the panel. 
And I didn't even realize that Jason Hervey and uh, Eddie Haskell <laughs> were not part of it. So they were special guests. That, that's it's quite an interesting uh, menagerie there. Yes, yes. But I believe, hey, I think it was Sandy, Patty, and, and I that were the judges. I know Patty and I, and I, I it was either Sandy or, or Jason. Um, we probably have to go into the annals of the, you know, and do the research to see who the, who the third judge was. Okay. All right. Well, Gary, uh, that brings us to the end of 10 questions and, uh, and the end of the interview. Um, look, I could listen to you tell stories all day. Um, I would love to hear, uh, we've just scratched the surface. Uh, you, you, as we said, you've been a part of so many memorable moments, uh, in wrestling behind the scenes. And I'm sure you have so many more uh, stories that you could tell. Uh, but I really appreciate you being so gracious with your time today. You're welcome, Kevin, and I appreciate you having me. All right, my pleasure. And uh, thanks to all of you out there for listening. Keep it locked on to ROHwrestling.com and ROH's social media channels. That's at Ring of Honor on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Ring of Honor. For news of when and where, future episodes of the ROH Strong podcast will be available. Stay safe, everyone. And let's all be ROH strong.